Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. We've been running some of the EJR show the last couple of weeks, which is our environmental justice report, and we've been covering what's going on in East Palestine, Ohio, for quite a while now. Today I decided to take a little bit of a break, um, and it was a last-minute decision, so this is very much from the seat of my pants, so to speak. Uh, you could you have to remember this show is live, so we make a goof. <laughs> it's there for the world to see. I don't bother to do any editing or anything. It is what it is. Um, and the advert today is the subject of culture wars. You know, the title is, Is This a Culture War or an Assault on Human Rights? And today what I'm going to do is discuss this ongoing attack on really what should be considered human rights, which has been mislabeled, wrongfully termed as, in air quotes, a culture war. And this assault is not just being pushed by, you know, the obvious um, the obvious cohort, you know, namely white supremacists, Christian nationalists, and neo-Nazis. They're a big part of it. They're pushing the active part of it, but it's also being maintained by what the late Dr. Martin Luther King called the infamous white liberal or white moderate who refuses to denounce these bigoted attacks, refuses to, you know, to join the rest of us in the streets. You know, I, I know some good people that mean well, a uh, few friends where they'll, you know, they maybe they went to the Women's March, uh, they've called themselves activists, and then, but when it comes to even just listening to the show, listening to, you know, the news, but what's really going on after a while, it's like they can't take anymore. Well, they can't bother to listen to something how do you think the people that are being viciously attacked for existing feel about it? And and I think it triggered this show, so it's, it's going to be very conversational. So I was watching, um, you know, the Young Turks with Cenk Uger and Anna Kasparian, and they were talking about the culture war, and they were talking about how, you know, we have to kind of come together that – uh, not all people in the GOP or even that voted for Trump are always bad. You know, some of them allegedly voted for Obama. How do you explain how Florida went for Obama when he ran? Well, as much as I love the Young Turks, you know, sometimes when you get too successful, you get a little lazy. They should have checked their facts. See, when Obama first ran in 07, 07 08, there were several states that came into play where uh, if everybody who was registered actually voted, namely especially in communities of color, he was going to win those difficult states, and Florida was one of them. The problem was dating back to the Bush era with massive voter suppression in those states, especially Florida. Now, when it came down to the actual election where Barack Obama was first elected, uh, I happen to know for a fact that his team got together some of the best civil rights attorneys out there, and they sent out entire teams of civil rights attorneys to monitor and make sure that everybody who was registered to vote was allowed to vote and that their vote was counted, especially in Florida. That's how 
Obama won Florida in the Electoral College. It wasn't because these alleged Republicans decided, oh, we're going to vote for this black man. That's not necessarily it. It was because the very people that had been that had their votes suppressed, namely communities of color, even though they stood in incredibly long lines all day, they got to vote and their vote was counted. So, uh, you know, we can argue that point, but the fact remains, I heard Jank and, and Anna Kasparian talking about this today, and I admit it kind of set me off because, you know, Jank is Turkish and he's wonderful, and Anna, I think, is um, Armenian. But the fact, especially in Anna's case, Anna can pass. Anna can pass for a white girl. So as long as she remains closeted, no one's going to bother her. But for people in communities of color, for anybody who looks a bit too ethnic, that's not the case. And when we're talking about is this a culture war and we should all come together and stop being divided by these issues of, you know, whether you believe in birth control or not, or whether you believe, you know, gay should have the right to marry or not. I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. I do not understand why in the world legitimately minorities should have to basically set aside their human rights so we all can, quote, get to get along. To me, that sounded a lot like the white liberal and the white moderate that Dr. King complained about. All right, and that's what kind of set me off. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to go to Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. All right, he wrote this while he was in one of his many, during one of his many arrests. And he wrote this to his fellow clergymen, many of which were white. April 16, 1963, that's how long ago, and it still holds true. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities, quote, unwise and untimely, end quote. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that crossed my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. So far, so good, right? <coughs> Excuse me, people. <laughs> Take a little tea here. I think this is really a very relevant piece. It still holds true. I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing. It's kind of long. But I definitely will read parts. Okay. Back to the letter. I think I should indicate why I'm here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against outsiders coming in, end quote. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South, and one of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. 
We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I I was invited here. I am here because I have organizational ties here. I'm going to stop here for a second. Keep in mind, this is part of the literature that bigots such as Ron DeSantis once censored. Back to the letter. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Now, the next line is a very famous one. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. End quote. I'm stopping here for a second. That is a quote that is worth repeating. Because it's something that the white moderates and the white liberals who keep saying we need civility in the face of such bigotry, they've conveniently forgotten because they're not the ones feeling the pain. Okay, I'm not as polite as Dr. King. I'm going to say it again. Quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I am sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham, but it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power struggle structure I'm sorry, left the Negro community with no alternative. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine where injustices exist, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then last September came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of the negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants, for example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. 
On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs briefly removed, returned, the others remained. And as in so many past experiences, our hopes have been blasted and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of of laying our case before the conscience of the local and the national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on nonviolence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christmas, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. You may well... Then it occurred to us that Birmingham's mayoral election was coming up in March, and we speedily decided to postpone action until after Election Day. When we discovered that the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Ball Connor, had piled up enough votes to be in the runoff, we decided decided again to postpone action until the day after the runoff so the demonstrations could not be used to cloud the issues. Like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated, and to this end, we endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need, we felt that our direct action program could be delayed no longer. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? End quote. I'm going to stop here for a second. This sounds too much like what alleged liberals, including on the Young Turks, are asking. Don't get me wrong. I have great respect for Cenk Uger, Anna Kasparian, and the whole team at TYT. But on this one issue, they were wrong. They, they were wrong. And the fact is the human rights of our brothers and sisters of color, the human rights of, minor, of religious minorities, the human rights of the LGBTQIA community, the human rights of feminists, the human rights of intellectuals and academics should not be up for negotiation. They're human rights. Period. And the idea that we have to put them up for negotiation because a majority of white alleged Christians don't like it is nonsense. Just to get them to what? Not want to fight us? It's nonsense. Back to Dr. King's incredible letter. But that last line kind of got me, all right? Isn't negotiation a better path, end quote? I'm going to go back to that. You may well ask, quote, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create a crisis and foster such attention that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. 
My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid to use the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so, cri so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. One of the basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act? The only answer that I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We are sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Albert Boutwell as mayor will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Boutwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists, dedicated to maintenance of the status quo. I have hoped that Mr. Boutwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation, but he will not see this without pressure from devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an, an historic fact, historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. Amen. He goes on to say, We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that, quote, justice too long delayed is justice denied, end quote. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. When you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negroes, Negro, I'm sorry. When you have seen, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering 
in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority to be beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-county drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes, I hate this word, nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly a tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. Excuse me. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time. When the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people I'm sorry, since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision in nineteen fifty four outlawing segregation in the public schools <coughs> At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that, quote, an unjust law is no law at all, end quote. So this is a long speech. I'm kind of going off of it here. Um, I'm going to try and skip ahead here. You know what? Maybe I'll just keep going. Back to the speech. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Okay, so here, see, any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. 
All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. Segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, substitutes I-it relationship for an I, an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, his lawful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? Thus it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court for it is morally right, and I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances for they are morally wrong. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law, I'm sorry, an unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is a difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Uh, let's see. I lost my place here. Okay, so I'm going to stop here for a second. What Dr. King talked about right there would now be called privilege or woke. All right? The idea being equality under the law. And it says it right there. I mean, it's just right there. The idea that a power majority group forces a minority group to obey a law that is not binding on them, on the majority. It's right there. Because when you talk about law, whether it's just or unjust, what you're really talking about is fairness, to put it in simpler terms. Fundamental fairness. The idea being, Lady Justice is supposed to be blind. No favoritism. The kids call it privilege. No privilege. I think privilege is too polite a term. Skip down a little bit because this is taking a while. Okay. Well, no, you know what? We're going to keep going because he makes a lot of important points. Um, I don't usually read a whole speech by somebody on this show, but this one, first of all, letter from a Birmingham jail is rarely covered in our school curriculums, though it should be. Instead, we have the I Have a Dream Disney-fied version of King. And that's the one that white Christians don't have to be made to feel uncomfortable. Well, that's nonsense. So I'm going to continue on with this. I, I, The brilliance of this, it's a little long, but no, I couldn't do better myself. I doubt if anybody could. All right, back to the speech. And if I... Stumble a little bit here and there because I'm using a magnifier because I'm waiting on new glasses. All righty. Let's go back here now. 
Okay. Alrighty. So I'm going to go back to that last paragraph. Let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. As I read before, an unjust law is a code that is that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. This is the difference. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow and that it is willing to follow itself. This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that, as a result of being denied the right to vote, had no part in enacting or devising the law. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama, which set up that state's segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are some counties in which, even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such circumstances be considered democratically structured? Sometimes a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there's nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but such an ordinance becomes unjust when it is used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceable assembly and protest. I hope you're able to see the distinction I'm trying to point out. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law as would the rabid segregationists. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than to submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. This is an important part, the next thing I read. Quote, we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. It's part of the sentence, but I want to point that out. Everything Hitler did in Germany was legal when he was in charge. It wasn't right. It wasn't just. It was evil. But he made it technically legal. Difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Again, we should, quote, we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. 
First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. Here it is. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with the goal you see. I, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. He put it on the line there. He goes on to say, quote, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men with respect to dig- will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with, like a boil that can never be cured so long as it is covered up but must be open with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. Okay, so he goes on. Okay. I'm going to skip ahead here. All right. He goes on, he goes on. Um, One of the things he said is, um, well, you know what? One of the things he says is oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. All right, which is true. Um, He also talks about how um, he, he, being a minister himself, Dr. King, again, talked about For instance, Martin Luther, wasn't he an extremist? Um, He also points out Abraham Lincoln's uh, statement that the nation cannot survive half-slave and half-free. Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And then Dr. King goes on back to the letter, quote, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Okay. Um, He goes on to say, let's see, I'm sorry, folks. He He goes on to say he hopes the white moderate will see this need. Again, I don't have a lot of faith in the white moderate anymore or the white liberal for that matter. 
So we're going to skip ahead here. And the letter ends with, I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial let me start again. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away, and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities, and in not and in some not too distant tomorrow. The radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine out over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Okay, so I skipped a big part of it. I read about half of it, truth be told, the gist. And right now what I'm finding, I wouldn't call them white moderates. I call them white liberals, I guess. Um, There's this division again. You know, where I understand strategically what um, some of the libs are saying, whether it's Cenk Uger, Anna Kasparian, or, you know, some of the Democratic leadership that, you know, we can't be fighting amongst ourselves because then that's what big money wants because then none of us get anything we want. I guess the question in my mind is why is it, it's a rhetorical question, why is it that minorities are the ones that have to wait, that have to sacrifice. I'm tired of it. You know, there's this myth out there that there were all these Reagan Republicans, I'm sorry, there were all these Reagan Democrats, okay, that voted for Barack Obama. You know what, I'd like to see those numbers because I'm not believing it. I'm just not. Maybe some of them did. But I'd be willing to bet that the reason Obama actually won had nothing to do with Reagan Democrats coming over and and voting for him. Okay, I think it had everything to do with the idea that the Obama team was smart enough to have massive multiple teams of civil rights attorneys making sure that everyone who wanted to vote was allowed to vote. Basically, Go, you know, basically going after any state that would suppress the vote. And I happen to know that for a fact. You know, I was publishing on Huffington Post at the time. And some of us were in communication with the Obama uh, election team. Some of us, including myself, suggested that they need to send teams of civil rights attorneys out there to make sure that the voter suppression does not take place. I don't believe for a minute that Obama won because of white Reagan Democrats. No. See, Reagan Democrats, these were union guys, white males, a lot of them, and some females, and they voted for Reagan. They voted against their own self-interest economically because, again, Reagan pushed the racist card. And so they went over and they voted with the Republicans. It was a Southern strategy and nothing else. Um, And... I believe that, again, and I think the data will bear out that Obama was elected because states like Florida couldn't get away with massive and systemic voter suppression of minorities, especially the black community. That's it. That's why he won. Because there were there were states where he came close to losing, and then once he set those attorneys down there, all of a sudden 
black folk got in those lines and they were able to vote. Voter suppression is a real crime. It happens. And, you know, I know it's hard for white liberals and even white moderates to believe that because when they go to vote and they live in a, maybe in an affluent suburb, they, like here in St. Louis County, there's parts, you know, you go to vote, there's plenty of voting machines, there's practically no line, they don't understand why it's such a difficult thing. And then you go into places where minorities live, and not only are there long lines, your vote, your identification is challenged. You have to go downtown. Many times I've told the story of a colleague of mine that I worked with uh, for many years. He, a black gentleman, he always voted, every election, no matter how small. And this was, I think it was in 2000. Yeah. And um, he went to his regular voting place. Mind you, he had been living in the same house for over 40 years. They said, you're not registered here. He went, what? He had to go all the way downtown, and he didn't drive, so he had to wait for the bus, go downtown, go to the election board downtown to get hopefully get that cleared up, to f- and then go back to the polling place. And here in Missouri, the polling place is closed at 7 p.m. So that was just clear nonsense. And it's hard for people to understand that – People that, you have to realize something, segregation does one other thing that's really bad. And what it does is it gives a false impression to those that are more fortunate. You know, one of the things I wish that they would teach in school is Plato's, um, you know, allegory of the cave. Where there's this creature in a cave, and the cave is very dark, and there's different men at different points, and they're perception of this creature is radically different depending on where they are in that cave. So it's different, radically different perspectives and they're each segregated. That's what segregation does. It radically um, distorts the full picture. It just does. You know, and here in my hometown of St. Louis, you know, there are people that they only go into certain parts of the city. They believe the narratives that's been pushed by corporate media. It's nonsense, all right? Um, today on Facebook, I think it's one of the things that got me upset today, too. I saw this um, crack made by this one white woman about, you know, rejecting woke. It was re- – let me see. I wrote it down here. Hold on a second. Really insulting. And she was referring to it as – not having things forced down their throats. That's what she was complaining about. You know, she was, this white woman was complaining about how the LGBTQ community is being forced down, their, their lifestyle is being forced down their throats. Or communities of color, religious minorities. And she, she said, I don't care. She made the statement that she didn't care if you're a person of color. She didn't care if you were black. She didn't care if you were gay. She didn't care if you were trans. Just don't ram it down our throats. Don't push your values on us. And I'm ashamed to say a classmate of mine went along with it. You know, she checked, yep. And it was so far removed from the truth, it wasn't funny. But when I heard that, she didn't want things rammed down her throats. I remember my mother telling me growing up, because St. Louis is a very bigoted town, She didn't want me wearing a Star of David or telling people that I was Jewish. She's like, don't rub their nose in it. 
Now, in the LGBTQ community, know what I'm saying. In other words, remain closeted. And it wasn't until adulthood that I realized that religiously, I had been trained to be religiously closeted because there were a lot of white Christians that had been taught hatred. Okay? The hatred that Muslims are experiencing now, the Jewish community experienced earlier and still does. Okay? So don't rub their noses in it. Mind you, y'all can wear a big cross so big you could literally use it to, you know, I don't carry a groceries on it or something, but I couldn't wear a little bitty Star of David because it's rubbing their noses in it. What that's really saying, what that woman on Facebook was saying was, I don't care if these people exist. I'm not necessarily going to – she was saying she wasn't necessarily going to take an AR-15 and blow them away as long as she didn't have to see them, as long as she didn't have to hear their voices. She just wanted to pretend they didn't exist. Because they're wanting to have equal time in the public sphere with somehow forcing it down her throat. Well, I'm sorry, but that woman was wrong. And she needs to grow up. But in case she doesn't know what woke means, because all this ended in that she was rejecting woke, I saw another thing on Facebook, and it was a beautiful way to describe woke. It's the following, quote, woke means awakened to the needs of others, to be well-informed, thoughtful, compassionate, humble and kind, eager to make the world a better place for all people. Be woke. What I would say to that vile, bigoted woman, I'm woke and I'm damn proud of it, and she doesn't like it, well, you know what? She can go take a long walk on a short pier until her hat floats. Again, I'm not as congenial or kind as Dr. King was because I've hit my limit. So let's go on, okay? There is a piece in Politico, and this was Politico magazine. Let's see now. And it was written by Zach Stanton, and it was published uh, actually two years ago. Yeah, let me see this again. Yep, May of 21. Okay, just, I love slow-growing cataracts, okay? <laughs> oh, I have to kind of keep using the magnifier because my glasses are not strong enough. And this was written by Zach Stanton. And the headline was how the, quote, culture war could break democracy. Here's the thing. I understand what Mr. Stanton was explaining here. He described how some 30 years ago there was a sociologist named James Davison Hunter and this is the person that kind of made popular the, the concept of culture war. And now this article is saying the culture war is getting worse, and you know it's putting democracy itself in jeopardy. Well, here's the thing. I would maintain and rebut that we never had a democracy here, not really. We had human rights and <laughs> a democracy for some, but not for all. And, you know... Little tea here. And perhaps things have to get much worse until white liberals and white moderates feel enough pain that they realize they can't just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. You know, there is this this really stupid idea of what constitutes racism and other forms of bigotry. And 
you know, a lot of racists and other bigots will think that as long as they don't do, as long as they don't commit the most egregious of racial racial crimes or racial acts, then they're not racist. We have a state senator here in Missouri, and um, his name's Andrew Koenig. We talked about him before, and he's pushing a lot of these anti-CRT laws, okay? He wants to censor our schools. The intent is clearly racist, clearly misogynist, clearly religiously bigoted. Now, on his website, when he ran for election, he showed his family, including the fact that he and his wife adopted two little black children. And he, he probably is a good dad. But that does, just because he adopted two little black children, even if he's really wonderful to him, it doesn't mean he's not racist. The problem with racism and misogyny or sexism is that, or religious bigotry, is that when you think your group, the group that you belong to, is inherently superior just because, then guess what? You're a bigot. It's that simple. If you think that whites, white culture and whites have contributed more to the world than any other group of people, then yes, you're racist. If you think that men have contributed more to the world, then yes, you're sexist. If you think that Christians have contributed more to the world, then yes, you're anti-Semitic against both Muslims and Jews. It's really that simple. And if you think that the LGBTQ community has basically contributed nothing, and that means, yes, you're homophobic and transphobic. It's not rocket science. <clears throat> and when it comes to racism, which is this country's original sin, it's not enough to say that you don't like racism. We must be anti-racist. We must actively fight it. So when we see these bills that are fighting CRT, critical, what they call critical race theory, first of all, <clears throat> I've been an educator for a long time. <clears throat> Critical race theory is not taught K through 12. It never was. It's limited to graduate school. Either you're getting a Ph.D. in political science or sociology or you're in law school. So unless you have some outrageously accelerated kindergartners, I don't think so. But see, what they're calling CRT is just telling the truth about our history. They hate the idea that we are basically saying that this country was set up systemically to support racism, to support misogyny, to support religious bigotry. But it's the truth. It's the truth, and especially with slavery. Good God. Before the 13th Amendment, slavery was permitted. It was the law of the land. If it's codified into law, that means it's systemic. That's the dictionary definition of it. Then after the 13th Amendment, they created the Jim Crow laws. Again, systemic prejudice, systemic discrimination. It, Jim Crow laws were codified into law. Again, dictionary definition of systemic. But the fact is that the people on the right, the GOP, doesn't want to be bothered with facts. Make no mistake about it. And I'm not a big fan of corporate Democrats either, but that's not the point. This is about a, a, tra a national travesty where we have a shortage of, of telling the truth, a shortage of facts. It's that simple. 
So this guy here, this uh, Zach Stanton, talks about how the culture wars are dividing us. Well, here's the thing, and I know I'm putting a lot of opinion in it today, but this really set me off. Those of us in the minority community, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a religious minority who is closeted, whether you're a member of the LGBTQ community who is closeted or not, whether you're a feminist, whether you're an intellectual or an academic, but especially two groups, namely people of color and women, because our identity is conveyed by our appearance. We can't deny it. We can't hide. If you're a white male, even if you're gay, even if you're um, a religious minority, whatever, if you keep your mouth shut, you can pass. But if you're not a white male, again, communities of color and women, then we've always known how unjust the system is. What we're tired of is the collective cowardice of the white Christian community that claims to be our allies, but then when we need them, they don't show up. Really that simple. So when we hear calls for civility, why? Okay, at least now it's out in the open. There's no guesswork. They can't gaslight us anymore. Um, I refuse to be civil to somebody who is actively working to discriminate against me or people like me. I refuse to be civil to somebody who wants to deprive me of my human rights. That's asinine. I don't want to hear their point of view. I don't need to hear their point of view. I'm, I've always known what it is. The question is, are we going to have an alleged democracy where there is fairness and where the words, the pretty words in the Constitution are actually fulfilled? That's the question. Are we going to have a fair and just society? Or are we once again going to sacrifice the rights of minorities and women because white Christians are starting to get a little uncomfortable? Well, screw them. I've really had it. So this culture war, you know, he points up, this guy here, he quotes the, um, he quotes a sociologist that really came up with this, this idea. And so there's James Davidson Hunter wrote a book and, um, and he titled it about culture wars and, you know, he was looking at, Davidson was looking at, um, I mean, Hunter, James Davidson Hunter was looking at the, the ongoing fights regarding abortion, not just abortion, let's call it what it is, uh, reproductive rights and control of your reproductive life for women, religion, and the public schools, thing, calling it culture wars. And, you know, he's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, Um and then 30 years later, you know, Hunter sees America as basically the culture war has gotten that much worse, you know, and thinking that, quote, creating a dangerous sense of winner-take-all conflict over the future of the country, okay? And so there's a quote from Hunter, the sociologist, the man who coined the phrase culture wars. This was in 2021. He said, quote, democracy, in my view, 
is an agreement that we will not kill each other over our differences, but instead we'll talk through those differences. And part of what's troubling is that I'm beginning to see signs of the justification for violence, end quote. And then um, he's talking about the insurrection, and he goes on to say, quote, culture wars always precede shooting wars. They don't necessarily lead to a shooting war, but you never have a shooting war without a culture war prior to it because culture provides the justifications for violence, end quote. Well, leave it to a sociologist to use a lot of extra jargon. To put it in blunt terms, the bigots have to rile everybody up and get them so get them so angry they're like raging bulls so they'll attack. It's really that simple. Um, and I agree, culture wars do precede shooting wars. But how do you talk through differences? What what you know, if basically talking through differences means justifying discrimination against certain groups. You know, if the law isn't equally applied to all, why should we talk it through? You know, his civility is injustice aimed at the rest of us. Not acceptable. And it's not that basically minorities have suddenly found their rage. We've always felt it. The difference is we're finally fighting back. That's the difference. Before, we didn't have enough numbers to fight back, and now we do. So anyway, um, Hunter, you know, he now leads the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Um, and, you know, what they're, they're asking, what changed? Well, in the, uh, the later half of the 20th century, um, according to Hunter, he said the culture war was on some level, quote, a cultural conflict that took place primarily within the white middle class. Okay. He goes on to say, um, quote, instead of just culture wars, there's now a kind of class culture conflict, end quote. Hunter also says, quote, the earlier culture was really about secularization and positions were tied to theologies and justified on the basis of theologies. That's no longer the case. You rarely see people on the right rooting their positions within a biblical theology or ecclesiastical tradition. Nowadays, it is positions mainly rooted, rooted in fear of extinction, end quote. Okay. So what he's talking about is the white replacement theory pushed by bigots like Tucker Carlson. Okay? It's really that simple. And they are afraid of secularization, but let's be honest. When they're talking about religious tradition, whose religion? Whose religion? In this country, I'm going to be very upfront and honest, and there's a lot of religious minorities that are afraid to say it. It, There are... There are worse places, don't get me wrong. But if I, if I were to say that it's difficult, it's difficult to be a religious minority in this country. And by religious minority, I mean if you're not Christian, you're regarded as a heathen. It might be done in polite terms and maybe in not such polite terms, but that's what it is. And Christians do tend to bully. If they don't like what I'm saying, then don't listen. But the constant proselytizing is irritating. You know, when you ask somebody, join my club, for instance, and they say no thank you the first time, then move on. But that's not what happens. And this is an instance where, yes, Christian nationalism is becoming a dangerous thing. Just is. There's a reason why we have a secular government. 
because it's within a secular government with a secular law that is based in that's supposed to be based in fairness and justice where everybody's equal in the eyes of the law. Well, that's the ideal. That everybody can still practice or not practice their faith as they see fit. But let's be honest here. You say you want a democracy. Well, democracy and theocracy do not coexist. I mean, let's be honest about religion. And I'm including my own. I'm including Judaism in the mix. Religion is not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. It's kind of like a parent-child relationship, God being the parent, and we're the children. There's no democracy there. We need secular law. And for too long, religious fundamentalists have been preaching hate. I'm not going to mollycoddle them anymore. Okay? The hate and fear of gays and trans people is coming from religious fundamentalists. Okay? With Christian nationalists leading the charge. The hate against feminists is coming from religious fundamentalists. Again, with Christian nationalists leading the charge. The hate against people of color is still coming from Christian nationalists. And even though there's majority of blacks in this country are Christian, they're not seen as equal. Okay? They're just not. You know, how many churches have you walked into where there's a picture of Jesus and he looks kind of like Brad Pitt? There's no freaking way. There's Jesus was not a white man. Couldn't have been. He probably looked more like Colin Kaepernick. But you can't tell them these, peop- these people that. And so this is an argument about how somehow we're going to have to find a way to get along and sacrifice whom? That's the question right there. Those of us in the minority community are tired of being the ones that are constantly sacrificed because up till now the white Christian majority is uncomfortable with us. I really don't care. Seriously. The fact is kids call what white Christians have privilege. Again, too polite a term. Let's call privilege, white Christian male privilege, because back in the day it was white Christian, what was it, white oh, let me, white male um, Protestant, okay, white male Christian, okay. That privilege, call it what it is, it's unfair advantage that one group stole at the expense of everyone else. There's nothing just or legal or moral about that. Okay? So there, I'm tired. When I hear even the Young Turks talking about this, I'm tired of hearing it. I'm tired of hearing this call for civility. Okay, And, and I can speak to leading up to the Holocaust, there were Jewish leaders that were saying the same thing. You know, we'll we'll just we'll be discreet. We'll just go along with it, be discreet, be quiet, we'll be civil, it'll blow over. Well, it didn't. It cost six million. Six million lives. See the problem is this, this is appeasement. 
what they call civility, appeasement when you're dealing with a dict- dictatorial type mentality. Appeasement won't work. When you're dealing with narcissists, even though it's cultural narcissism, let's call it what it is, appeasement won't work. Appeasement will actually make them more aggressive. You know, uh, again, I would think that, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't own a gun. I support the Second Amendment. I don't think that people with mental illness or children should have access to guns. That being said, I support the Second Amendment. I personally don't own a gun because I have cataracts, and I'm afraid I would, you know, hurt uh, um, an innocent. But I think every minority group, every member of communities of color, religious minorities, feminists, the LGBTQIA community, intellectual stars, every single member that's able to needs to get guns, become crack shots, and let the other side know, we won't fire the first shots. But we're ready, willing, and able to return fire if need be. That's not inciting. That's just telling the truth. Right now, these lunatics, they're emboldened by the fact that they have this idea of the political left as being a bunch of pacifists. That's it. But like most bullies, they're cowards. The second they see that our side is ready, willing, and able to defend ourselves, they're going to start thinking twice. You know, that's why when I listen to Black Lives Matter, when I listen to even some of the old speeches by Black Panthers leaders, I can't help thinking if my own people had done the same thing leading up to the Holocaust, maybe six million wouldn't have had to have been murdered. You have a right of self-defense. And right now, besides attacking us, the... GOP is trying to erase history. They just are. You know, what was it? Nikki Haley running for president. I keep getting texts from that moron's campaign. And she's claiming that by George, Confederate monuments and the Confederate flag are part of the tradition. And as long as it's taught, you know, for positives. What positive is in slavery? None. When it's brought up to her campaign that the Confederate flag and those monuments are to blacks with a swastika is to Jews, they don't hear it. They just keep twittering on their nonsense. They're trying to erase history. They don't want to see what happened to Emmett Till. They don't want to see what happened to slaves routinely. What happened in lynchings? They don't want to hear about the Holocaust. They are trying to erase the First Amendment to make it just an amendment that pushes religious rights for white Christians and no one else. And then erase freedom of speech altogether, except again for white Christian conservatives and no one else. No. It's pretty pretty obvious here, okay? I need a little drink of tea here. So, 
this is what we're dealing with. Okay? And so now, this is, uh, you know, once again, this is what I felt I needed to talk about here. All right? We are talking about human rights for all. This will, you know, the American Bar Association, I looked up a um, an article. This is from July of 22, just this past summer. Um, it was written by Jay Stewart Adams and Robin, gosh, I can't see that. Robin Fretwell Wilson. And the title is Human Rights for All, From Culture War to Not a War at All. <laughs> Again, <laughs> this culture war nonsense. It's not a culture war. We shouldn't call, it has nothing to do with culture. Culture is about art, music, literature. Culture is about fashion, food. Culture is not about politics. Now, there can be a political culture, so to speak, but we need to stop using that euphemism, culture war, and civility, and rule of law. You know what? Dred Scott was rule of law, and it dictated that blacks were only were, were not considered people at all. They were property. So this is something where the, we need to stop calling it culture wars. We need to stop allowing corporate Democrats and, yes, the radical right wing to dictate the terminology, and the parameters of the debate. This isn't a culture war. This is the fascist on the right wing declaring war on democracy and on minorities. And then they twist the truth on top of it all. They're calling us fascist. They're calling us racist. Because from their perspective, if they suddenly are being held accountable equally under law and that People of color and women and gays have the same equal rights as them. They see it as a loss. Well, this is how immature they are. Equal, making the law just and, and equally applied with no privilege at all, that's not a loss for them. We're not talking about a pie that's sliced up and they get a smaller piece. But that is what their immature brains think. Charlie Cook, Marjorie Taylor Greene, etc. So this is what we're dealing with. I know it was kind of off the cuff here, but it was something I felt it had to be said because I am sick to death of the term um, culture war. It's not a culture war. It's a war against democratic rule. It's a war against equality. It's a war against equal rights for all, period. So the next time you hear somebody refer to a culture war, don't let them get away with it. Say, no, it's not a culture war. We're not talking about art appreciation here or, you know, international cuisine. We're talking about equal rights. This is a war against fair and just equal rights under the law to everyone, period. We're not going to let them get away with it anymore. And if the Democrats and the, the corporate Democrats don't like it, to hell with them. Don't care. This means having uncomfortable conversations with friends and family. You know, and I admit I'm a little emotional today. I remember I had a conversation with a cousin 
oh, God, about a month or so ago. You know, and she's a Republican. She comes from a Republican family. I don't know why. And I remember I made a crack about, you know, basically the day Donald Trump croaks, I'm going to do a happy dance and throw a party and celebrate. And you could just hear the shock finally. She goes, you really hate him that much? Yeah, what would you think I was saying? Donald Trump, in my opinion, is a fucking Nazi. Of course I hate him. But I've been saying it and been saying it and been saying it. But it took that long to get through to her. And then I could hear the trepidation in her voice. Because it was no longer funny anymore. Before she'd laugh it off. It's not funny anymore. Okay, so now... That's what we're talking. That's what we talked about today. We talked about the idea that no, this isn't a culture war. Stop calling it a culture war. Um, read from Dr. King. He said it better than just about anyone else. Do yourself a favor. Read the entire letter from a Birmingham jail. This should be taught in all schools. And um, you know, just turn the argument. Don't let them call it a culture culture war anymore respond with what culture war we're not talking about art appreciation or you know a new cuisine we're talking about equal rights under rule of law secular rule of law this is a war on democracy make no mistake about it so now we're going to get to and again it was a loosey-goosey talk today but i I had to get it off my chest. We Next week, we will be most likely back on the East Palestine type situation. Uh, right now, we're going to go to okay, our Jackass of the Week Award. Give me a second. PNN's Jackass of the Week Award. And this week, our jackass of the week, very special jackass, or really I should say a Jenny, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman herself. Now, she tweeted something about how it's, and I'm going to imitate her ignorant little accent, there's time for a national divorce. And then she went on, uh, I think it was Charlie Kirk's program today, and um, she was saying, here, I wrote it down here. She was saying that, um, just looking for it. Hold on a second here. I lost my notes here. Well, she was saying, we we don't want a civil war. We just want a national divorce. Now, here's the thing. Why would you mention a civil war and how you don't want one if it wasn't on your mind? Talk about, I feel like saying, lady, your Freudian slip is showing. But that would have been too obtuse. She wouldn't understand it. Um, this national divorce, she went on to explain how this isn't about succession. You know, like when during the Civil War, the Confederacy succeeded. In other words, they broke away, said, we don't want to be part of the United States anymore. You know, I realize little Margie, as I call her, is frankly rather stupid and you know she probably should just ride to congress in the little yellow bus i know that's unkind but uh, i she really needs to use a dictionary because look up the word succession okay now put bluntly according to merriam webster succession is defined as quote 
formal withdrawal from an organization. Now, it goes on to say the Oxford Languages definition is, quote, the act of withdrawing formally from membership of a federation or body, especially a political state, end quote. So when she's saying a national divorce and goes on how to say there'll be states' rights, there'll be red states and blue states, and, you know, we're not going to, you know, be just different laws, that's succession, that's exactly what she's proposing. There, there's no guesswork here. It, it, it's it's unbelievable. Um, the fact is, what she's done by tweeting this and then going on these talk shows and reiterating, she digs herself a deeper hole because essentially Marjorie Taylor Greene, we now have grounds actually to remove her from office legitimately. And that's because she broke her oath of office. When they swear, they swear to protect not only the country and the people, but the U.S. Constitution from enemies both foreign and domestic. When you propose succession, you can call it a national divorce all you like. You've broken your oath of office. You've announced your intent that you don't want to be part of the United States anymore, which means you don't have a right to be a United States congressperson. It's really that simple. Okay. And states' rights thing, you know, some people might compare it to Brexit. And some people have called it a blue exit, okay, or a red exit. But the, the fact is, this is about breaking up the United States. It's nothing else. And, wow, there's so many things wrong with it. First of all, if you, if you don't care a whit about democracy itself – Militarily speaking, it's an incredibly stupid thing. We break up into red and blue states and there's no United States anymore. Newsflash. That much easier for our enemies to take over. You know, there's a reason why before it was the United States, uh, the before we had the U.S. Constitution, the Articles of Confederation were just ditched because it was a lot like what MJ with little Margie wants. Each state has their own little fiefdom, their own little kingdom, if you will. And then, you know, little Margie also proposed earlier in the week that people that live in red states that ever voted for a Democrat, they should lose their right to vote for five years. Based on, I'm going to say a bad word, based on what fucking law, little Margie? Where in the Constitution does it say you can do that? Oh, wait a minute. She doesn't care about the Constitution. Because she's talking about succeeding from the Union. She is a Confederate through and through. Make no mistake about it. And calling it a national divorce, doesn't matter what you call it. It's like being a little bit pregnant. It's still the same thing. So little Margie uh, basically has shown her treasonous self. Oh, one other thing, too. She keeps calling it traitorous. There is no such word. The word is treasonous. Somebody needs to buy little Margie a dictionary, but then that would also imply that not only one, she could read, and two, that she actually understood what she was reading, which frankly is doubtful. So for these reasons and so many others, Marjorie Taylor Greene is our jackass all the week. Keep praying on, little Margie. Bray on, you stupid bitch. Okay. Again, I got a little worked up this time. 
I couldn't help myself. All right. So this is what we're dealing with this year, this week. Next week, we're going to be talking more, most likely more about the East Palestine uh, disaster. Um, you know, as you know, Donald Trump showed up and bought McDonald's for the firefighters and the cops. You know, I feel like telling them, Donald, don't strain yourself. I mean, it's just so ludicrous. And then he starts grandstanding about how, well, you know, where's President Biden? Biden's in Ukraine. Okay, here's the deal. No U.S. president that I have known has ever traveled, except maybe Eisenhower, has ever traveled to an active war zone until Biden. You know, took some guts. Um, President Biden should show up in East Palestine as well, though. Definitely. Um, but again, that disaster happened for a variety of reasons. We've talked in earlier shows about how, um, based on work done in the publication The Lever by David Sirota and his team, that a lot, they tried to pass, Obama tried to pass some safety regs and they were watered down. But the Trump, what few safety regs there were, the Trump administration rescinded, took away, in other words, the second he got in office. But it's a bigger picture than just that. The fact is, it's the whole idea of deregulation itself. Um, when you deregulate an industry where there's a lot of money, you're basically saying, hey, Fox, meet Head House, bon appetit. It's really what you're doing, okay? Because they love calling it regulation, but at the end of the day, what is regulation? It's rule of law. They don't have any laws. They just basically, these corporations do whatever they bloody well please, and then everybody's shocked when this happens, when a disaster happens. Silly. So we will be talking most likely about the East Palestine issue again um, and many other issues. Uh, but today I had to get that off my chest about this nonsensical culture war. It's not a culture war. It's a war against human rights. Um, it's a way to deny human rights to everyone except white, Christian, straight males and their subservient females. And that's not democracy. So that's our show for today. Um, again, I was venting. I hope you learned something. And with that, I say good night and God bless us. Oh, and and that goes to all. God bless us because we're going to need it. <laughs>